Hello and welcome to this Sustainable Wine podcast. This is a recording of a conference session that took place on the 2nd or 3rd of June 2021 as part of Sustainable Wine's Future of Wine Americas Conference 2021. We'd very much like to thank the sponsors of that conference, BSI, Bodega Argento, Jackson Family Wines, International Wineries for Climate Action and Avenea. Thank you to all of those groups for their important support and I hope you enjoy the session. Hi, everyone. I'm very excited about this very session. I am surrounded by uh, lots of knowledge, and we were asked to look together at how does the U.S. wine industry need to adapt to a changing environment, and what role will sustainability, uh, sustainability play? And I was just reflecting on this, thinking, wow, when I founded Tasting Climate Change in 2017, it was a very long thought process uh, that was born from 2005, a documentary I I was watching. And at the time, there was very little platform where many members of the wine industry would come together to discuss uh, those um, those solutions. And so I'm quite excited to, to, to have this panel today. Um, before we start, I would like to go around table and perhaps ask you ask each of you to introduce yourself, uh, starting with Michaela. Michaela, welcome. Thank you. That's uh, lovely to be here. Um, thank you for inviting me. I am uh, Michaela Rodino. I have been in the wine industry in Napa Valley since 1972 and have had kind of a wonderful career starting up two wineries. One was Domaine Chandon in the early 70s and the second one was St. Supri starting in 1988. And now that I'm so-called retired, I am running our very small, tiny family winery called Villa Ragazzi and growing grapes that we sell to Robert Mondavi Winery. Thank you, Michaela. <laughs> Sorry? You want more? There are, no, more no, it's, 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 it's good. It's good. We'll, we'll, we'll have a chance to talk more about it throughout the session. Uh, Sandra? Thank you very much. Uh, I'm Sandra Taylor. I'm the founder of Sustainable Business International. It's a consulting business um, that assists companies at various stages of environmental sustainability and corporate social responsibility. And our clients are primarily in the food and beverage sector. Uh, I'm a graduate of the Wine MBA program at the Bordeaux School of Management. Uh, I'm a consultant, a wine educator, a wine writer. And my first book was The Business of Sustainable Wine, which was published in 2017. Prior to my work in the wine industry, I had an extensive executive career uh, in uh, corporate public affairs, environmental sustainability, and most recently, um, I was the chief sustainability officer for Starbucks Coffee Company in Seattle, Washington, and created sustainable procurement and sustainable certification programs for coffee. Thank you. Thank you. Carlos? Well, hello everyone. My name is Carl Jesus. I run the marketing and communications for um, for Amarim Cork. Uh, and before that, I spent a previous life actually in uh, in New York City dealing with uh, Wall Street and investor relations and shareholder services. So it was a completely different life. But for uh, the last uh, 15 years now, gosh, I've been running uh, the marketing and communications. As I said of a company that produces 5.5. A billion corks every year uh, that seal wines, um, cognacs, and spirits in general all over all over the world. And it's a pleasure to be here today. Thank you, Carlos. Rob. Yeah, thanks for uh, having me here today, Michelle. I'm Rob McMillan. I'm EVP and founder of Silicon Valley Bank's Winery Division. Uh, many people probably know me more as the author of Silicon Valley Bank's State of the Wine Industry report that goes out every year and uh, is picked up worldwide. It's uh, something that we started uh, almost 25 years ago, 20 years ago exactly, uh, in January actually. And uh, just as a, as a help to the industry, and um, if you haven't read it, I, I'd encourage you to go look at svb.com, and it's a free download. Uh, it's, a lot of people read it, so it's, it's worthwhile. Thank you so much. Um, 
Before we answer the question, um, what came obvious to me when we all had the discussion uh, prior to this, to this meeting, we, we all met, and I was asking each of you um, how to adapt to the changing environment, but what became clear is that because we have different experience and different view of things, you all had your own idea of what was changing within uh, the environment. Uh, so before we actually answer the question, I think it would be very valuable to go to do a round table and take a couple of minutes so that you can each answer this question. From your point of view, um, what is changing? Uh, and then after that, we can look at how we can adapt to it. Um, so, Rob, I will start with you. I just finished reading your report, <laughs> and uh, I know that you know you, you. That is what you do. You always look. Uh, you always bring so so many insights in terms of what was and what is becoming. Uh, so, from that, uh, in your with your knowledge, what is changing? What is what is changing in the environment? Yeah, so uh, I'm going to back up one step and, and acknowledge that there's no real good definition for sustainability. Um, the way it's the way that that is used, uh, I think, more often today is in discussion about sustainability as it relates to the you know ecological issues and um, environment. You know, is is something sustainable for the environment? Sustainability to me, though, actually, uh, at, from a business standpoint, has to get down to profitability. Uh, it's, at some point, if you don't have profitability, you don't have sustainability. You're not you're not going to be around. So, now to the question: What's changing? Uh, what's changing is uh, post World War II, we had uh, across the world a, a boom in um, in population growth. In the United States, it's called the boomers. It's called something else in other countries. Um, but that population growth has led to GDP growth worldwide in, in various different uh, economies. And now at this point, that that generation is um, starting to, you know, hit retire, uh, hit retirement age, or has retired. It's in the United States now. It's uh, the boomer generation is is not the largest. The largest generation now is the millennial generation. Um, and so that's what's changing. It, we're moving from the boomer generation to the younger millennial generation. And and just to be clear, that that generation now, that bulge and that that second wave of, of people. Uh, at the at the at the oldest end of the curve now is is forty years old. So it's not like they're eating sugary cereal at home in their footed pajamas anymore. Uh, it's it's a uh, you know they're well into their careers, and they're making choices. And the choices that they're making today are to consume spirits instead of wine. Uh, which, uh, if you look at you know recent data that I have through the end of March, um, shows that uh, growth in, in spirits are about 5.3%, while growth in wine in, in the United States, uh, I'm talking about the United States, growth in wine is actually minus 0.01. And uh, it's even less than that for still wine. So that's what's changing. And uh, my, my own point of view is that we have done a very good job riding the, the boomer wave up uh, and we're holding on too long. We're holding on too long to um, the ideas and the things that were successful with, with my generation and we're not adapting and uh, talking about the important things to the next generation, um, one of which is how we treat the environment. And, uh, and so that's something that we need to uh, grasp. We need to figure out what, what is of value. And I, I don't think it's a hard thing to figure out, but health is another big component of it. Uh, health is, you know, in order to have sustainability, you got to have health, right? There's, there's definitely an aspect of that. And uh, we, we really don't even have uh, calories on bottles, which is a part of health. So a lot, a lot of changes that are necessary uh, in, in to adapt to the, um, the, the the outside business conditions that are evolving. 
I purposely started with you because um, I think you're right. When we talk about sustainability, often we go directly for the environment. We forget the social aspect and the financial aspect of it. And I wanted to do the reverse because if we cannot be financial, uh, if sustainable uh, financially, then the rest uh, doesn't really work. So I think looking at uh, the, the, the millennials and the newer generation, what they need, we need to understand that if we want to continue to be sustainable. Uh, Michaela, I'm going to go to you. Um, you have a very interesting background, uh, having been CEO uh, of, of different companies and the last one being Saint-Supéry. Uh, you, you saw the business change over the years. Uh, and I know that you're retired from the, the Saint-Supéry, but you're still very active in many, many ways. Um, can you share with us the major change that you have um, experienced over the years of what it was when you first started uh, playing a very important role in into today? Oh, wow. <clears throat> that, that's a, a very huge question for me. <laughs> Basically, in over 40 years, everything changed all the time. And most people in my experience are very resistant to change, which is a terrible mistake because if you aren't moving along and adapting as, as the world changes around you, you're essentially left behind. I, I will divert for a moment and say that I completely agree with what Rob just said about um, profitability, but I think there's even more to it than that. And that is that obviously, eventually it will all boil down to profitability, but how do you get there? I mean, we're facing things today that existed, but not in such concentrated form. Like in 1989, we had a huge earthquake in San Francisco, and that totally disrupted the launch of St. Supri Winery. We were all ready to go, <laughs> and tourism dropped dead in its tracks because the Bay Bridge fell down, right? And people were very upset, and that was international news. Well, we're still facing things like that. We'll always have earthquakes in California. They're not always that bad by any means. But now we have wildfires, which is a whole new thing. And that's a huge threat. And insurers are running away and putting businesses at great risk because they're afraid of wildfires. Wineries are refusing to buy crops they've contracted for because they're afraid of the damage that wildfires might cause. These things are new. I mean, they've always been there in the background, but they were not as, they didn't have the kind of impact and they weren't as severe as they are now. Some of these things are clearly related to climate change. Others are not. Um, like the corporatization, the increasing uh, uh, consolidation and corporatization of the wine business. Again, I'm, I'm talking at this from a Napa Valley perspective, which is a tiny part of the wine business, but a really has a big bow wave, as we like to say, you know. <laughs> um, it's, it, when you take away the decision-making from the, the locus of where the production is going on and where the heart and soul of the business is, then you can really start making some terrible mistakes because the wine industry is a very long-term business the way it currently exists. If you want to do something that also has existed in the past, like make thing, products like Annie Greensprings. That was going on a long time ago, and now we're getting seltzers, and you know it's kind of the same phenomenon, but it's not the traditional wine business that's been around for millennia, <laughs> and that I think most people think of when they think of wine, right? But if you've got people sitting in a corporate office somewhere, and again, this has been going on for a long time, but it's getting worse and having more impact on things and, and decisions are being made that are too short term, especially in companies that are um, being pushed by Wall Street if they're, if they're publicly owned. So that's a kind of a new one that's, that's gotten worse. Um, let's see, what was else? Oh yeah, politics. Ah, suddenly we're back into the tariff wars, right? <laughs> That's not fun. That's a very disruptive thing in the marketplace for the wine business. And we're helpless to do anything about it except for voting. And, you know, we're a, we're a small business in the context of the American uh, business world. So we don't have much influence. We can go to Washington and buy support very readily. Um, Anyway, I, and I agree we haven't done a great job of talking to consumers. I think we have the internet, notably, and all of the public social media has given us a voice that we never really could afford to buy before. 
So that's actually a really good thing. And we're just still trying to figure out how to communicate effectively that way and use that tool. I mean, there, there have been so many changes. It's kind of hard to. Yeah. After them. I, <laughs> it's, it's a good start. And, and then there's come... the. Reaction of, okay. I was just so gonna... you're, no, it's okay. You're breaking up a little bit here. Can you just repeat what you said? You just broke up a little bit. Oh, sorry. Um, but I was, I just, I'll stop there with one last thing. And that is that the, uh, the regulation of the wine business in this country remains a horrible mess because the federal government will not step up and, and standardize all of these rules that all the various states have been making over since 1933 <laughs> and still doing it. So there's plenty of upside potential to address all these problems, but they really are getting kind of worse right now. Thank you. I'll come back to you with many, many more questions. But I think this is a very good segue into Sandra because, Sandra, we've talked about um, lots about communication to consumers and also the, 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 the legislations around certification. Uh, so I know you have a lot to say in that regard. So can you share with us what you've see, seen changing uh, over the years? Yeah, I was. I just wanted to maybe um, just talk a little bit about kind of my definition of sustainability. I mean, typically when we use the term sustainability, we think of avoiding the depletion of natural resources and protecting the natural environment, but it's much more than that. We also need to protect social and economic resources. Uh, so I define sustainability as the integration of environmental health social equity and economic vitality, I mean, that's the profit, uh, in order to create thriving, healthy, diverse communities. Um, so that's just my definition of sustainability. I think it's, you know, it encompasses all of those. Um, but, you know, unfortunately, so the term sustainability is often misused and abused. Um, I mean, we're stuck with the term, but, um, but too often we don't really know what it means. Um, and I think too often people believe sustainability is simply marketing. And clearly marketers have abused the term. Um, and it's simply marketing without any rules or guidelines. That's a perception. But in fact, many wine growing regions have established sustainable certification standards, starting with the growers in Lodi, California that established its mandatory Lodi Wine Grape Commission in 1991 and its sustainability certification Lodi rules in 2005. And then there's now, of course, leading sustainable certification programs in Argentina, in Chile, and in various wine growing regions in the United States beyond uh, just California. And of course, there's biodynamic, adoption of biodynamic, organic, and natural winemaking practices. And we typically lump all of those together uh, under the definition of certified sustainable. Um, so uh, it, this is all very exciting for the wine industry, this adoption and implementation of these certification programs. Um, it, and the, I think the industry is excited and happy about the contribution that we're making to a safer, healthier planet. But consumers still don't get it. They still don't understand it. And they still seek assurance that the industry is effectively protecting the environment and treating workers fairly, all while delivering quality wines. And so a certification program is really critical, I think, to give consumers assurance and confidence that we're doing uh, what we say we're doing, that it's not just marketing, uh, that there are there's rigor to these programs. And I think we still have a long way to go um, to help consumers uh, really understand. I, I, you know, while the industry has really adopted this, I think, in many regions of the world, we still haven't quite figured out how to um, give consumers assurance in the programs. Thank you. Um, Carlos, um, you come from a very different uh, part of the industry, which is cork. Uh, how do you, what, from your point of view, um, what has changed? Uh, I know that, you know, at some point people were moving away from cork for so many ways. And now because people are realized not only the technology to remove the TCA, but also people are realizing that it is a very sustainable product. Um, 
what have you seen change uh, over the years? Well, I think as a whole, the big difference now is that everybody is scrutinizing everybody. Uh, and that is uh, not necessarily a bad thing. But all industries, not just the wine industry, but all industries now are being watched by the, by the media, by the investors, by the corporate clients, by the consumers, by the government. And this has brought a, a scrutiny to a point where I think, and, and echoing a little bit what Sandra was saying, you know, this kind of a wild west that we have been living in in the last several years when it comes to sustainability and greenwashing, I tend to be more optimistic than, than pessimistic about it. And I think that things will start to get clearer. Um, but when you have this kind of, this kind of scrutiny, uh, you also have to be able to respond um, not just with the traditional bottom line. That remains, and Rob was the first one to mention this, that remains, of course, paramount. Uh, you, you cannot distribute wealth if you don't create it. You know, that's an old adage. And I guess it's difficult to not say impossible to argue against that. But what was traditionally a successful company was a company that was based on that performance of the financial bottom line, you know, attracted a lot of attention and everybody was very happy about it. Until we start seeing big names making decisions that from a, a, a financial bottom line made perfect sense. And you can think of, you know, the stories of, of Nike and a lot of other brands that made decisions that made sense from that financial bottom line, but did not make sense from a sustainable uh, bottom line point of view or a social uh, bottom line point of view. And I think that changed a lot. The best defense against that scrutiny, I think it's to adopt what must be at some point, at some level, uh, a, a common uh, or commonly accepted definition of sustainability, which is, it's what balances the environmental issues with economic issues and the social issues. And I would even go further and, and, and defend that there is a big, a big myth around all of this, which is the concept of sustainable development. Well, if it's not sustainable, it's not development, is it? It is something else. So I think the sooner we start incorporating um, this, the concept that we cannot have development without that angle of sustainability, I think the better it is for all of us. And to be honest with you, when it comes to the wine industry, I think um, it's doing a better job than a lot of other companies, a lot of other industries, sorry. Partly because leading companies are discussing this much more openly. There are a lot of things going on from, from, from this initiative to the Porto Protocol to the individual initiatives that wineries are putting forward. And I think um, there is leadership in terms, of, in terms of these aspects in the wine industry, and that can only be positive going forward. It's, it seems to me that, you know, when I, that topic comes back from seminars to seminars is that our industry is fragmented. It's, it's not moving fast enough. And at the end, we have the consumer and there's something between the, 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 the wineries um, that feel that sustainability is important and, and the other part of the supply chain, we have the consumer, but within in the middle, often we even have the trade that's cynical about sustainability. They, they pick up a bottle and they see another logo, yet another certification, and even they are lost, the sommeliers, uh, and, and they're the one at the end who are recommending the wines on the floor, who are speaking to, to people. And I ask a question to all of you and, and and we can, you know, we, we can jump on this, on this answer, but I'm just wondering, um, we have so many logos in different regions and they each mean something different. I think to me, one of the most exciting things in the, in the last years is that some of those certifications now look at the traceability of carbon footprint, which, you know, we talked about sustainability, but in terms of the environment for the longest time, those certifications, most of them were not even looking or tracking the CO2, which is, you know, pretty major when you think of, um, of climate change. So my question to you is, um, we all know there's a problem there, but how can we work together in, in finding ways to communicate to consumers? Because logos, even though they have certification behind them, um, there's a lot of them and consumers seems to be lost in the trade often is, as well. <laughs> Anyone want to go first? Yeah, I'll just jump in and say, I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, consumers and the trade. I mean, too often we talk about how do we communicate 
to the consumers, but we have to communicate to our customers. So that's the trade. It's, you know, it's restaurants, it's event planners, it's, it's sommeliers. I mean, there's so many um, conduits to the consumer and they don't understand what sustainability means, or if they do, we have very different um, meanings for it. And the proliferation of the certifications is not helping at all. Um, so I think the, the whole idea of adding uh, bottle seals or label, putting information on the labels about sustainability, it was an effort at transparency, but it really, it doesn't work if the, you know, if the consumers or the customer uh, can't navigate what means what and determine authenticity, I think, unfortunately, I think the seals can be or the labels can be some more confusing uh, to consumers. So, you know, we need to figure out how we can communicate more simply, um, you know, what, what our commitments are around sustainability to consumers and to the trade and really target um, our communications to the trade. I mean, certainly the, you know, I think the U.S. Um, wine industry is making a, an effort at this. Um, there, there is a recently a summit of several of the wine growing regions to talk about better ways and common themes for uh, communicating sustainability uh, to, to the marketplace, let's put it that way. Uh, so I think that's a step in the right direction. Uh, there was earlier, I, I was listening to the earlier discussion around harmonization, and I think that's, that's confusing and difficult, and there's some resistance to that. But I do think we're going to have to figure out a way to clear some of the clutter of our certifications uh, so that consumers feel uh, confident and understand what it is we're doing and what we're selling. Do you do you think that I know you were working in the coffee industry before? Um, do you think the coffee industry, for example, has done a way better job in that regard? And what can the wine industry learn from the coffee industry in communication to consumers? Well, I would say that, yes. And I, I think in some respects, the coffee industry has done a good job. Um, but, you know, but, I, but there are, for example, fair trade. I mean, everybody, people may not know what goes into developing a fair trade certification, but consumers have a confidence in fair trade. And I think the coffee industry has done a good job of that. Um, certainly, there's still uh, several, there aren't quite as many. I mean, there's At Starbucks, we created our own certification program, which we offer to the industry. You know, we basically, coffee and farmer equity practices is what we called it. It involved uh, criteria for economic sustainability, for environmental sustainability, and social responsibility. So was the coffee farmer paid a fair price? Um, was the coffee uh, worker, farmer, worker uh, treated fairly? Um, and was there an effort to improve uh, environmental sustainability in the growing of coffee trees and in the harvesting of coffee, uh, the coffee cherry into the coffee bean? Um, so I think they're pretty, most of the programs that exist pretty much have uh, very similar uh, requirements, um, but certainly Rainforest Alliance, people have a confidence in that. I guess the point I'm making is sometimes we can't expect and we should not necessarily expect consumers to understand the technical, the technicalities of the certifications, but we need to build confidence in the, in our efforts to create sustainable programs. And I think the coffee industry was very successful at that. Let me just say the wine industry has such an advantage over the coffee industry because for coffee, a lot of companies came to this because of protests because of you know store really bad stories of um, the treatment of of workers uh, in coffee growing regions the you know the price of coffee it's it's traded on commodity it goes up and down and poor coffee farmers are subjected to uh, economic hardship as a result 
of you know, coffee traders. That's not how the wine industry started its certification programs in any part of the world. I mean, it was really, I think it, for, it was mostly growers who felt that it was the right thing to do. It was safe, safer for them and for their families and for their workers. So fortunately the coffee industry, uh, the wine industry um, has an advantage in that we're not, with a few exceptions, I mean, we're not facing protests you know, outside the winery gate or at the cellar door. Um, so uh, this is something the industry did because they felt it was the right thing to do. And I think we can come together and do exactly the same thing in, in the way in which we can communicate this to the marketplace. I'll just add to this. I think there's no doubt. I mean, so, so many research uh, everywhere around the world have shown that the consumer is interested. Uh, they just don't really know what all of those certification mean. And when you're finishing your day and you're just going to buy a quick bottle of wine, uh, you know, and you're picking up the kids afterwards, um, you know, there's been so many um, uh, psychologists talking about this where you have two, two sides of your brain, system one and system two. And, you know, system one is the quick purchase. You don't have, you don't have time to think about it. And system two is the one that, really that's where you go for the really important decisions. And with that 20 or 30 seconds we have to grab the consumer's attention on the shelf uh, is not gonna do the pros and cons of each label. It doesn't have time to do that. So um, somehow I still think that we quite haven't, even though we understand the issues, I feel the wine industry is still not figuring out how to, uh, to, to get there. Uh, Rob, I see you're, you're nodding. Do you have anything to add to this? Well, it's, yeah, it's the, um, the way we market. Well, let me back up one step. So when we're, when we're talking about sustainability and, and you know, the, the ecological uh, responsibility that we have, um, I, I do agree that the, I mean, it's, it's, it's not a dirty little secret. It's a clean little secret that the industry is, yeah. is actually, uh, you know, uh, quite concerned about the way they, they handle their farming. And uh, and there's you know sustainable organizations everywhere, different different uh, seals that they that they abide by. Those don't get translated to the to the bottles very often, and and that's that's the oddity is that the the consumer the the emerging consumer is so much more into health, so much more into uh, you know transparency from uh, like like the food to table thing. The you know where does their food come from? They want to know. And and the odd thing is is that the the wine industry actually is everything that that young consumer wants. They just don't know it <laughs> because we're not really telling them that you know. And and marketing at its core is trying to align you know values uh, you know with your your own features. And it, and it's one thing to greenwash things you know to make it all up and and you know we're, we we see that. Uh, but we're just not we're just not as an industry even starting down that path. As I said, we don't have calories. Uh, you know, we we say um, on the on the back of a bottle, maybe uh, for a single vineyard designate, you know exactly where that comes from. Um, uh, but there's there's a lot in between there that that has to be done and should be done. Uh, I'm not, I don't know that we have to stick, uh, uh, you know, brand certifications on, on things. I think it's helpful more, uh, that we have agreement, uh, within the industry for those things. If that happens to be taken outside and gain a little bit of acceptance and with the consumer, you know, that's fine. My own belief though, is that consumers come up with their own definition of words. So for instance, natural. That's very controversial in, in the in the wine industry, specifically in the U.S., because certain certain folks want to take uh, that that name, which consumers already have an identified thing in their mind. What what natural means? You know, you go to Whole Foods, that's what you get. It's natural, <laughs> uh, or you know, whatever whatever their ideas. And so we can't just take words and repurpose them for our own internal, you know, talking to ourselves, and and then express that to the consumer that it just leads to more con confusion. The, the cohesion at the industry level, I think, is, is really important for those kind of things, those kind of organizations, so that we purposefully take those values and, and work on those, and they have external impact. 
but in the end, what we've got to be able to do is, is line up those values with features, and those features already exist. The consumer just doesn't know. Mm -hmm. That's our fault. I and I love what you're doing, what you're saying in terms of we have to, to work together. And then after that, the rest is there. But how do we do that? Well, yeah, yes. go, go ahead. Michaela. Go ahead, Michaela. I don't want to dominate. <laughs> okay. I don't either. But basically, wine labels are really small. Okay. <laughs> and back labels are even smaller than front labels. Yes. And if you have a message that you want to help to be helpful to consumers, you've got very little space to put it on there because a chunk of it's taken up with UPC codes, another chunk of it is taken up with warning labels, which are not helpful at all to most people, I think. And, you know, once you've read one, you never look at them again, but they're still taking up a lot of valuable communication real estate on the label. The third problem is that we're not, we as wine producers, have to get our labels approved by the federal government. And the federal government won't let us make health claims, right? So we can't even talk about wine being a healthy beverage, which I think most people kind of understand it is. And there's not, if you get into talking about ingredient labeling, there's another very complex thing that takes up a lot of space on labels. So we're if you're looking at um, trying to help a shopper in a, in a store looking at back labels, and people do read back labels. I mean, but I think what they're usually trying to find out is what's this wine like and am I going to like it, right? I think if, if there were a way for a national agreement on some kind of certification that would, would telegraph in very small way, on a label that this wine is wholesome, whatever, you know, that whatever people really want to know about it. I mean, I don't think they want to know all the data and we certainly don't have a mechanism for giving it to them short of QR codes that they could then find as much information as they wanted to. And I, you know, people can do that right now if they don't. Miguel, if you, sorry, Miguel, you actually pointed out it's something very important is it what it is that people want to know. And I would argue that different segments will have different needs, um, different requirements in terms of the amount of information, the quality of information, the depth of the information that, that they can obtain. I, I absolutely agree with you. The limited amount of space that you have in a bottle and it's so crowded anyway already um, makes it difficult to, to carry any more of those relevant messages in, in those labels. I would hope, and, and I think it will happen, that uh, uh, an engaged consumer, he or she will find sources of information that are reliable and, and will find their way around, around that. And often I was, I was listening to you and, and I was thinking about, wait until you have to explain to the wine consumer what biodynamic really means. Um, yet some of the world's most expensive, certainly, and unanimously considered that some of the best wines in the world are actually biodynamic. And they never advertise that in one single uh, line of copy or, or an advert or a photograph ever. Yet that reached the consumer to the point where, again, you know, they can be some of the most expensive wines in the world. So, again, I think there is some room for optimism here in the sense that um, eventually, sooner or later, and I agree if you say that things should happen sooner rather than later, of course, absolutely. But it's a long process. I, I look into some of what the OIV processes are to try to get some kind of, of consistency and homogenization in terms of even uh, the, the, the nomenclature of what the words should mean. Forget about the methodology, we're way before that. And some of these processes go on for, and I'm not exaggerating, six or seven years. I know it's a multilateral organization, so it's very, very complicated to do anything when you, you're working on a multilateral multi-level organization, but if you, I think if you're going to wait for that to come out, rather than being at some point pushed by the industry or from within the industry itself, we may infer a long, long run on that. Um, Carlos, I'm, I'm going to stay with you here. Can you maybe talk specifically uh, in your company, what your, you know, which role, how you're adapting and how is sustainability um, playing, uh, doing a role in adapting to the, ch to the changes? 
Well, I mean, the big drive uh, within within the company was, um, you know, the, the proverbial kick in the pants that I think the cork industry had when you had a 97, 98% uh, market share. When you have that kind of market share, let me put it this way, your propensity to listen does not go up. Uh, so that proverbial kick in the pants came in and the big driver was research and development and innovation. You know, we had a problem to defeat, a problem that is measured in nanograms, if you want a term of comparison. The pharmaceutical industry has to do quality control in parts per billion, easy. Today, we're doing quality control in half of a nanogram, half of a part per trillion. Uh, so that gives you an idea of the scope of what we're looking into. But that, that, phase, that phase is, is taken care of. And meanwhile, we start looking at something that was so inherently ours, which is the, the sustainability, the concept of cork forest native species that have been around for dozens of millions of years that produce a, a, a product that has an incredible level of complexity, but it's still sustainable. I mean, of course, the fact that we never cut down the trees, that, that's a good head start, obviously, but there's a lot more around that. Cork forests provide the best paid agricultural jobs anywhere in the world, and that's fundamental because that fixes people to the land. And if you want to start changing things, you have to find a solution for the fact that all cities in the world have too many people and all the countryside in the world does not have enough people. So you need to have well-paid jobs that, uh, that can start to change that. The Corp Forests are one of the 36 hotspots of biodiversity uh, in the world. Uh, this is a wealth that go well beyond the borders of the countries that have uh, the native species uh, of cork oaks, uh, regulates water cycles, protects against forest fires. So there's a lot of ecosystem value that it's here. And certainly there's a lot of carbon retention. Unfortunately, we could fix the CO2 problem today and tomorrow we would still wake up with the big sustainability problem. So we always try to look at things from a holistic point of view, because again, if you're not looking at, at the whole story, you're not telling the whole story. But we also understand that we need to make this more quantifiable, more easy for people to, to understand. So we asked two of the largest auditing companies in the world to go and do that, do an analysis of what the balance of the CO2 retention is, because that is more immediate. That is, I think, the low-hanging fruit in this question. And the results were absolutely remarkable. They, they, these are great results for us that produce those, those products. Having a natural whole cork stopper with a CO2 balance of 309 grams is great news for us. Of course it is. But these great news are not fully realized until we are able to share them with the people that make this possible. Mm -hmm. and the people that make this possible is the wine trade. So that's the big focus that we have now. Share those good news, make sure that the companies that are under pressure to lower their environmental footprint can do so, um, not in that greenwashing wild west that we were talking about, but with solid data, with demonstrable quantifiable contributions to a very unique sustainability story, which is, the cork forest and the wine industry. We are actually providing our, our clients and we have uh, over about 20,000 customers now around the world in the, wine, uh, in the wine industry, giving these clients the ability to incorporate the CO2 retained by cork in their own balance of CO2 uh, performance without an added cost, because of course those, course, those corks were already paid for. So we are very enthusiastic about it and it's good news for everybody all around. Do you have specific programs uh, with producers in the United States to educate them? Because I find when you talk to producers, a lot of people still don't realize uh, the carbon capture from the, from the cork industry. Well, we're not, we're, you know, we're a, a small company and we are about five times bigger than the next competitor. So, you know, we don't have, unfortunately, the kind of resources that, that Sandra was, uh, was alluding to. And, and that are important. I'm glad you have that. I wish I had it. So we cannot go straight to the consumer and communicate with the consumer about these great advantages, but we can certainly, and we have done that. And that's a big, big effort. Go directly to the wineries. You know, we have fully owned subsidiaries in every major wine, wine market. And Amarine Cork America certainly is doing a great job in going directly to the wineries, to our clients and say, listen, this is, these are the studies. Take a look at that and we will help you incorporate these values, these retention values into your overall footprint and the results have been absolutely fantastic but i still think that it's not just a cork 
Cork, of course, is a big weight, a big heavyweight here, but it's everything. The, the, the CO2 retained by the vineyards, should we consider that or not? The CO2 retained in the barrels, is that relevant or not? And I think we need all the help we can get. So my, my, my message is look at what is around you and you might as well be sitting down on a big reservoir of CO2 that you're not accounting for. I agree with you, and, and that answers one of the questions. Alison Jordan, that I know very well, asked a question about, um, you know, what can the wine industry do in terms of sharing how to adapt to climate change? And that's not an easy topic. It's very complicated because there's so many moving parts to it. Um, but I think communication, because what I find is that the challenges that, for example, the United States have might be different than France or might be different than Australia. But as we're moving forward and we are experiencing extremes, what we're finding is that some of the region are experiencing extremes that they haven't before. So we need to rely on each other. We need to open that discussion, not just within a region or a country, but with other countries that have perhaps experience with this. And, and Carlos, you're talking about the capturing of the CO2. I think the wine industry can be a leader in the world because we emit a lot of CO2 during fermentation. And I think if we just start by doing that, by looking at ways, just it's just one piece of it, right? But um, look, showing other industry that we can be a leader and, and, and also inspire other industry. But I do think that a lot of solutions already exist. The technology is there. Um, but before reaching to consumers within our industry, I think we need to find a way to communicate more effectively um, so that we can adapt those changes. Because when you're a small winery or a big winery even, but you're doing everything yourself, the small producer who is sending the email to, to export and doing, you know, tending the vineyards, they, they might not have heard of all of that. So I think the more communication to your point, Carlos, that we have, I think the more chance we have um, to, to win this battle. I would like to go back to Michaela. Uh, Michaela, you were the CEO of, of your uh, company for a very long time. And at the time you've implanted a lot of fundamental changes. I know that direct to consumer was, was one of the things that you really worked on just as an example. But if today you were appointed uh, to a company uh, as a CEO, knowing what you know today and talking about what you've talked about in terms of, for example, um, the, um, the challenges brought by climate change and the fires and so on, that is quite concerning in terms of the financial risk that comes along with it. What would you do differently? What would I do differently from what I did in the past? Yeah, because it's not, you know, it's changed. So um, what would you have to look at uh, and how would you do it? Well, I mean, to me, the two parts of the wine industry that have always gotten my attention, the parts that I like best uh, dealing with are consumers and you know, we've been talking a lot about the trade today and they are certainly very important. They're um, maybe a little less important than they used to be because direct to consumer is growing um, from a very small base. Um, but I really think that ultimately, if we don't figure out how to communicate all of these complex things to consumers, it's not going to make any difference because the the trade, bless their hearts. I'm, I'm accepting sommeliers here <laughs> uh, and, and people who are on the floor and who are genuinely interested in the product and are well informed and able to talk about it intelligently to consumers. I think, you know, they're all doing a great job, but there's also a very large group that is just a pass through basically. And if you don't have consumer pull for your product and that's something that, that the producers have to generate right? The brand owners, the producers, uh, it's not going to work. So that's why I always focus on consumers because I, I think even though, and, and we have now tools that we didn't used to have. We could not go out and spend huge amounts of money on effective advertising campaigns because at least around here, 95% of the wineries are family owned and two thirds of them are really small, Right. So they don't have those kind of funds and, and neither does Carlos's company. And so we all, it's rare that you have a company that big. Maybe they account for a lot of volume, but they're not necessarily spending their resources very effectively in terms of bringing the world into the enjoyment and appreciation for wine. 
that it deserves, frankly, as, as a healthy product that's been around a long time and is, makes people happy and brings them together and does all kinds of good stuff for us that we kind of know intuitively. Um, but, but there are people who aren't getting that message yet. And those are the ones who we would like. But for all I know, it'll bring world peace. Wouldn't that be great if everybody... <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. So um, if I were appointed, oh my God, to go back to work. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. uh, uh, Miguel, just, just to your point, sorry. And I want to I emphasize one, one thing that comes straight from what you're saying, which is the cultural relevance of, of wine. That's an incredible advantageous departure base for, for the whole industry to work from. And I think... And, and, and even, the, even the coffee industry, as great a product as, as, as it is and great a job as you guys are doing, uh, doesn't really have that same kind of, of cultural relevance that, that, uh, that wine has had. And, and I think part of that uh, perception cannot go away. If we cannot lose what is certainly one of the greatest in the long term, certainly, one of the great advantages from a marketing point of view, from a communication point of view, which is that... Um, that cultural relevance. I mean, the sound of, and I'm sorry, I, I'm, I have to talk about cork again, not because, not because of cork itself, but just think of this. I mean, how many sounds are universally recognized as carries of good news, of positive news, as the sound of a bottle being opened? I mean, that pop is an incredibly important market asset. And I think collectively, and I speak on my you know, mea culpa, mea culpa also, because I ran, as I said, the marketing communication of a company that depends on the cork stopper. So maybe we should do a better job at recognizing that there is a continuum that no matter what age group, what gender, what continent is universally recognized as something positive. And that comes from wine. We have that. And being able to, to use that to bring more people into the category, um, I think, yes, absolutely, it's important. Although, Rob, I also would like to point out that some of the most quote-unquote innovative marketing approaches from the makers, some beers or, or, or whiskeys or even rums that I see copy what is an integral part of the wine proposition, the denomination of origin, the using of this barrel over that barrel. A lot of the stuff that we have been seeing that is being portrayed as very successful in, in the spirits industry or in the in the beer industry comes straight from our wine playbook. Thank you, Carlos. Uh, Rob, I'd like to go back to you. You've mentioned some of the things that you've seen change, um, but now, what would you what would your recommendation be in terms of moving forward and being uh, financially sustainable? Well, um, one of the things in being a a leader, um, as I think I am in the industry, is to actually invoke change. And so uh, quietly over the last two and a half years, uh, me and uh, some others have gotten uh, called the top 30 wineries together, people in the top 30 wineries to start to talk about this, you know, uh, r recognizing that we have a demand problem. And uh, this last week we, we met, we all Zoomed together and um, we asked that question. And of the 35 people there, 33 of them said, yeah, we have a demand problem. So what do we do about that? And, uh, and so, uh, you know, what we're trying to do is to start a national marketing organization, which doesn't exist in wine. Um, spirits are, quite frankly, kicking our ass in, uh, in the way they market. Um, and, and it shows. Um, when... When we had uh, in the in the 90s, uh, premium wine came out for the boomers. Beer sucked. <laughs> it wasn't very good, and and it was really kind of ahead of the premiumization of spirits. To Carlos's point of view, spirits did did copy the premiumization effect of wine. Uh, and today, people drink across categories. So, what's needed is back to that communication, it's, it's marketing. Marketing is not just, you know, selling crap, <laughs> you know, just, it's not just selling uh, things that are phony. It's actually communicating uh, the, you know, the values and the principles and, and the, 
um, you know, the specific features of, of a product. And we're not doing that job. So trying to get that organized, trying to get that pulled together is going to be a Herculean task. And so we're hoping that that, that can be done. Um, and we're working, going to start to work on the uh, formation component of that and parallel path with um, starting some sort of a marketing campaign. Hopefully that's done the next, uh, in the next year. Yeah, I, I think that's really critical because, I mean, consumers don't need to know kind of the arithmetic of how um, a certification score was arrived at or, you know, what, what's the behind the, you know, the, our, our sustainable sort. They just need to feel um, that our sustainability programs are authentic and that they can trust them. And I think marketing is the answer to that. We have to challenge our marketers. And granted, smaller wineries don't have huge marketing budgets. Direct-to-consumer does actually give us um, more real estate. You know, we can stick a paper in the, in the packaging to communicate uh, the sustainability accomplishments of the winery uh, from which the, the consumer is purchasing wine. But I think marketing, we have to figure out how do we communicate, um, you know, the, sustain, the authenticity of sustainability to consumers, whether they, they don't want to know, you know, what was the, the score that, you know, a winery got in terms of their, their growing or their, you know, their packaging or their, uh, honestly, that I don't think they even want to know what their emissions are. They just want to feel like the, the industry and the winery that they're doing business with is, has adopted a program to reduce emissions. It's, I mean, essentially what consumers want, and this is something I learned in coffee, consumers want to rely on companies and governments to help them reduce their own personal environmental footprint. I mean, consumers want to shop and feel confident and less guilty, frankly, about their own purchases. And I think that's our responsibility as an industry to help them do that. I would just like to say um, I'm delighted to hear Rob say that there's a group that's trying to do this. And, you know, the sort of tired part of me is saying we've been down this road before more than once in the wine industry That's right. and we have failed <laughs> more than once to come together in a productive way to convey a message about wine from a marketing point of view that will increase the base of consumers in this country. That's generally been um, the, um, the, the goal here, the goal is slightly different, but it has the same effect because if people feel, you know, trust wine as a, a product that isn't destroying the planet and therefore they can enjoy it without any guilt, that's a good thing too. I mean, it, it ends up in the same bucket. The, the problem has always been that while everybody kind of likes the idea, you still need a really big pot of money to make that work. That's right. Uh, maybe less than in the past because the internet has provided a few more tools um, than the previous possibilities. But the real problem is getting the big companies, the ones with the resources to do something for the good of all, right? Because they can do all that for themselves and they tend to act in a very competitive way. Um, we look around here in Napa and the vintners here are a remarkably collaborative group, especially even in the context of other wine growing regions around the country and around the world. We share a lot here in Napa and we really work together very productively, but that's uncommon. Mm. Now, so the real obstacle here is not, you know, the consumers not wanting to listen to us or not trusting us, it's getting us to work together productively. That's right. Yeah. That, that is the problem and, and call me Don Quixote. <laughs> to even uh, take this on, but uh, but we're down. We're well down the path. We're actually uh, completed the um, feasibility study with Haas School of Business um, this last week, and and we're moving to the next stage. So uh, it's not. This isn't a press release, by the way. <laughs> but but we you know we I recognize this has to be done. We've got to be better at communicating uh, the values and the product attributes of. Hey, guess what? Wine is plant-based. <laughs> you know? 
yeah. <laughs> uh, um, I'm not saying that that's going to be the, you know, the way we market wine, but we do need to get people to understand that we have an a not natural wine, a natural product. It's plant-based. It's you know, there's a certain thing that it does to the earth, and uh, and there's a certain thing that it does to a community, and and those things have to be uh, brought out. We're not doing our jobs, and so that's the hope. And I think it's a really uh, good way to end. Um, I think uh, it's exciting to see that we do have the foundation. Uh, we do have what it takes. I think as an industry to be a leader and to make a change, I think we just need to find a way to communicate better what we're doing so that the industry is ahead of other industry. Uh, and there's no reasons why we should be behind spirit and beer when it comes to the millennials. Um, so hopefully uh, a platform like this where we all exchange, um, you know, what is challenging, but also what the solutions are, uh, will continue to, to help us get there. Uh, and I think this is very important. So I really thank you all today for your insights and uh, your knowledge that's very valuable and hopefully together we can keep on uh, walking towards a greener future and a more sustainable future uh, for us and the consumers. Mm -hmm.